0: So last Sunday in this pulpit, I asked all of us a couple of questions. One of those questions was, What are we doing here? What's the purpose? What's the point of church? Why do we gather every Sunday? And the answer I suggested was that we come because faith communities, at their best, provide practices and rituals and a framework to try to answer those essential questions of life, the biggest questions of life. How do I want to live my life knowing I will die is one of those questions. And another one of those questions, those big essential questions in life is, what saves us? What saves me? And that is the theme of this new sermon series that we move into starting today. And I want to be clear when I say what saves us, I'm not talking about being saved for a heavenly afterlife. I'm asking the question, what is it that helps us feel whole, that helps us heal and live wholehearted lives? If you look at the root of the word salvation, you get the word salve, and a salve is an ointment, is something you put on your skin or on your body to help it heal, to help it recover, to help it be whole again. Salvation at its heart is really about wholeness and about healing. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we are honest with ourselves in this space or in the quiet moments we have just by ourselves, we are all looking for salvation, aren't we? Every single one of us. We're all looking for something that will save us, that will heal us, that will help us move toward wholeness as we deal with the pain and challenges of life. Isn't that what we are doing when we reach for a poem or a sacred scripture or a bottle of pills or the bottle or pornography or overworking? or working and accumulating so much with a sense of just a little bit more. Don't we all reach for something? Something that we think might help or save us from the pain or anxiety or despair that we feel in our lives. And sometimes it's a good thing we reach for and sometimes it's not. So in this series, this What Saves Us series, We will explore ideas and practices that might help us live more whole lives and more wholehearted lives. And I love this expression, wholehearted lives. It's one that the author, Brene Brown, uses in her book, Daring Greatly, which I recommend to all of you. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. She says this about wholeheartedness and wholehearted living, and I wanna share a few passages with you. She says, wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage and compassion and conviction to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. Wholehearted living, she says, means showing up to our own lives in deep, authentic ways. And she reminds us what we know matters, but who we are matters more. Being, rather than knowing, being rather than knowing requires showing up and letting ourselves be seen it requires us to dare greatly to be vulnerable the first step of that journey is understanding where we are what we're up against and where we need to go next in our lives Brene brown she doesn't use the word salvation in this book But I think she's talking about salvation, about wholeness, about wholeheartedness, and how we can get there by truly showing up to our own lives. And friends, this is where the sermon took me in a really unexpected direction. I had a sermon in my head. I read Brene Brown's book. I knew where I was going. It was all mapped out in front of me, right? You know how you're driving down the highway, and you're like, oh, there's my exit, I'm going this one. All of a sudden, you're distracted, and you're like, woo, missed the exit, and you're on an uncharted territory. That's sort of what happened with this sermon. So hold on to everything I said about Brene Brown and what saves us, and wholehearted living, and courage, and compassion, because this is going in a different direction than I thought, and I'm just, I'm gonna invite you all to hang with me as we go there. So it's Super Bowl Sunday right? And I'm not a big football fan. I have not watched a football game this entire season, okay? I've loosely paid attention. All right, someone's like, all right, me too. I didn't watch any football. And I've, I've loosely paid attention to what's going on. I used to live in Colorado. I know the Broncos are in the Super Bowl. That's not bad. That's kind of, you know, background awareness of what's going on. I'm not even excited about it. I'm like the Broncos. It's, I haven't lived in Colorado in a long time. But there's something going on that relates to football relates to the Seahawks who are in the Super Bowl that is absolutely worthy of our time and attention this morning. And it relates to courage and to being human and to wholehearted living, all of those things that help save us. So, here we go maybe some of you have heard of Richard Sherman. Who's heard of Richard Sherman? Have you? So a number of you have heard of Richard Sherman. Okay, maybe some of you have even seen this post-game interview with Richard Sherman after the Seahawks beat the 49ers two weeks ago. And I wish we had, I wish we had this big screen up here. It's sort of, it's a dream we have to, ha- to drop that down and show you this 30-second video clip because I cannot do it justice, but I'll try. I'll, I'll give you the, the What happened in this 30-second, who's seen the script? Maybe we've all, who's seen it? A bunch of you have seen it. Okay, so I'll be really brief and describe to the rest of you what happens in this 30-second interview. So two weeks ago, Richard Sherman, a cornerback, it doesn't matter if you know what a cornerback is or not, he's a player for the Seattle Seahawks. (laughs) He made a career-defining play that propelled his team, that assured his team would win this game and go into the Super Bowl. It was an amazing play. Like, I've I've seen replays of it. It's an amazing play. Immediately after the game, a number of reporters came around and started asking him questions about the play and what had happened. But it was one reporter in one interview that made the news, and it sort of went viral. Erin Andrews, a white woman, stuck a microphone in Richard Sherman's face and said, take me through the last play. And this is where I click the screen on, and you're like, watch Richard Sherman talk to us because he is so full of adrenaline. He is pumped up. He is juiced up. He's like emotional and on fire. And he looks right into the camera, and he lets loose with some really pretty aggressive and kind of juicy trash talk. I mean, this is the moment that reporters love. It's what we pay these football players for, this like super aggressive, hyped up sort of stuff. It's like the reporters don't like, well, the team really played well, and one one day at a time, and I'm really glad we're going to the Super Bowl. Like, they don't want that no one wants that so Richard Sherman looks in the camera and he says well I'm the best corner in the game and when you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree this is what you're gonna get don't you ever talk about me and Aaron Andrews is like who's talking about you right she's loving this moment like this white woman is loving this moment so she sticks the microphone back in his face and he says I'm talking about Crabtree, this player for the 49ers. Don't you open your mouth about the best, or or I'm going to shut it for you real quick. And then they cut away. Boo! they go away from from that scene. So I've spent some time reading on the internet and watching more extended footage and really getting a sense of what's going on here and reading some analysis and critique of this. And one of the people I read, this guy named Greg Howard, says, this was a Powerful, raw reaction. Sherman had made the biggest play of his career to win the biggest game of his career, and he, and that aggressive energy, is exactly what athletes are paid to do on the field. That's what sports reporters are supposed to get from those athletes. It was a triumphant moment, said Greg Howard, and still, to a lot of people, there was something viscerally ugly about Sherman standing over a pretty blonde woman, yelling into our living rooms with an emotional mixture of joy, relief, excitement, arrogance, and anger. Some people found the behavior off-putting or unprofessional, and I can see that. But something else happened here. In that interview, the white and black racial narratives the old, tired, untrue stories that we have about who black men are and how they're supposed to behave, all of that was at play in this 30 seconds. In this interview, you have what looks like an angry, not very articulate, possibly aggressive black man yelling into the camera, perhaps frightening this small white woman next to him. That image pulls on the deepest stories about race that exist in this country. So whether you're a football fan or not, what happened next is worth understanding and worth talking about because millions of people triggered by this interview and the racial narrative that was present took to the internet and unleashed a flood of vile, horrific, racist garbage. Writer Greg Howard, again, helps us understand what happened exactly, and I'll quote him at length here. In that moment, Sherman, a kid from Compton who went to Stanford, was in the public eye on television. And when you're a public figure, says Greg Howard, there are rules. Here's one of them. A public personality can be black, talented, or arrogant, but he can't be any more than two of these traits at a time. A black, a public personality can be black, talented, or arrogant, but he can't be any more than two of these traits at a time. It's why antics and sound bites from guys like Brett Favre and other white athletes, and even Justin Bieber, right, capture the country's imagination. But black superstars like Sherman are seen as polarizing, as selfish, as glory boys, as distasteful, and perhaps offensive. This is Greg Howard writing still. He goes on. All this is based on the common, very American belief that black males must know their place, and more tellingly, that their place is somewhere different than that of whites. It's been etched, he goes on. It's been etched into our cultural fabric that to act as anything but a loud yet harmless buffoon or an immensely powerful yet humble servant is overstepping. It's uppity. And too many of us, he concludes this piece, too many of us think that one ecstatic, triumphant black man showing honest human emotion just seconds after making an incredible play is not only offensive, but it's also representative of the tens of millions of blacks in this country. So what I want you to know and understand, if you don't already, is that after this interview, the vile and the racist hate that spewed out across the internet was stunning to me. A blogger I read commented, the number of tweets that compare Sherman to a monkey or an ape are astounding. This blogger goes on to say, the breadth and variety of anti-black Twitter responses to Sherman's outburst share one glaring similarity. Hear this, this is, this is sort of summarizing the Twitter responses. To that outburst. They hold Sherman accountable for his affective response, his emotional response to Aaron Andrews, that TV correspondent, by suggesting only one way to placate the angry masses. Sherman is made analogous to an untamed animal who must be put down, or more to the point, taken out back and shot because he cannot be contained, because he does not know his place. Sherman has read a lot of Muhammad Ali, same thing, absolutely. Although we turned the narrative at the end of that. At the end of Muhammad Ali's life, he carried the torch for the Olympics. We somehow saw in him someone who we could love and get behind. That's what erupted across the internet after that interview. In the following day, Martin Luther King Day, Sherman's post-game interview made the rounds on television and talk shows. It was rehashed and talked about, and the word thug was used frequently in reference to Richard Sherman and his behavior. And the question, the question for us this morning is, what does thug mean? One blogger asked, does it mean foul-mouthed? After all, Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Patriots, a white quarterback, was never called a thug, when in reference to a bad call from a referee he got in his face and on national television dropped the F-bomb. Tom Brady did. So does thug mean foul-mouthed? Sherman didn't swear. Does thug mean violent? Sherman didn't threaten or hurt anyone. What does thug mean? And here's where this relates to this idea of daring greatly, to knowing that we are imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that we are also brave and worthy of love and belonging. Because Richard Sherman, in the face of these racist assaults, maintained and strengthened his own humanity and called us back to our own as well. You see, he wrote a column for Sports Illustrated talking about this post-game interview. He said, yeah, I was loud, it was in the moment, it's just a small part of who I am. People find it easy to take shots on Twitter and to use racial slurs and bullying language far worse than what you'll see from me. And then facing the press on Wednesday in this extended live interview, Sherman talked about the racist garbage he has faced since the interview, including being called a thug repeatedly. Sherman said, the only reason it bothers me is because it seems like it's the accepted way of calling somebody the N-word nowadays. It's like they were going to use the N-word, and they said, thug, instead, and they're like, oh, that's fine. That's where it kind of takes me aback, and it's kind of disappointing. One of the articles I read that was reflecting on all of this shared this this really touched me, stuck with me. In order for people of color to receive a human card, they must assimilate. They must not use slang. They must be quiet. They must not wear hoodies. They must not curse. They must be gracious at all times. They must not brag. In short, they must be perfect, robotic. Even if you are a professional athlete who performs for millions of Americans, playing in a game in which aggression, and testosterone, and energy are rewarded and demanded, you must be quiet, gracious, calm, and unassuming. The author goes on to say, to be black and also be regarded as human, you must never make a mistake in your entire life, or you are a thug. Your human card is denied. Thug is a word used when we want to revoke humanity. Trayvon Martin was called a thug during his murderer's trial. The jury needed to be convinced that this boy's humanity could not possibly exist if he was a thug. So when Richard Sherman's graciousness is criticized, it's more than his status as an athlete that's being attacked, it's his blackness. When the media calls him a thug, they are denying him his humanity. And in this press conference on last Wednesday, Richard Sherman calls this out. He says these words, Maybe things could have been worded better. I, but I didn't commit any crimes, and I wasn't doing anything illegal. And then Sherman brings up the crazy double standard of how fighting in the almost entirely white National Hockey League is no big deal, And he points to this recent brawl, maybe some of you saw this flying around on Facebook, between the Vancouver Canucks and the Calgary Flames, two seconds into the game where the folks just throw down their their sticks and just like start going at each other. And he says, Richard Sherman says, I look at that hockey game and I thought, oh man, I'm the thug? What is going on here? What is going on here? And in calling out those double standards, Richard Sherman refuses to surrender his humanity card. He refuses to live in the racial space prescribed to him and moves toward being a full human being, living in freedom. In doing so, he shows tremendous courage and saves the integrity of his soul and spirit and invites us to do the same. In the words of Brene Brown, Sherman might be imperfect and vulnerable and perhaps even afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that he is also brave and worthy, worthy of love and belonging. Sometimes we must have the courage to step out of the box that attempts to define and confine us we must have the courage to walk away from the old stories, to see them as no longer life-giving, even when so many would have us live in those places. As the poet says, I will not die in unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on. As fruit. May we live lives of courage. May we see clearly the stories that destroy our brothers and sisters and destroy our own lives. May what comes to us as seed turn to blossom, what comes as blossom turn to fruit. May this congregation, may all of us bear fruit worthy of this world. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> you didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Did ya? Huh.